You know, I'm right. The podcast that uncovers the origin stories of some of the biggest names in sports, entertainment, and media. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. Joe, our guest today, he's in sports, he's in entertainment, he's in media. I mean, he's more than a triple threat because he's an athlete, <laughs> he's an author, he's a commentator, and he's just, he's done it all in his career, and we're very excited to have him here with us today. Yes, one of the most decorated athletes in the, our country's history, uh, the most recognized male figure skater in the world, uh, U.S. Olympic Hall of Famer, World Figure Skating Hall of Famer. Uh, as you alluded to, he's a TV broadcaster, uh, somebody who is a triple threat. Uh, he's also a cancer survivor. So that's always important to acknowledge, a uh, special person, uh, humanitarian, and somebody we're very, very fortunate <laughs> to have on with us today. Uh, really, really appreciate the time he's going to spend with us. Scott Hamilton. Scott, uh, you were chuckling over there in the background. Wow, so yeah, it's a lot. kind of gave it away a little bit, but uh, it's welcome, so welcome funny, to you know, know I'm right. Big introduction for a five foot four guy. You know, it's just like, okay, that's a lot of <laughs> appreciate I, it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And and again, as Nick alluded to, uh co-author of multiple books, three books. So we'll get to talk to that uh with that uh as the, the podcast goes on. But how are you today? I'm good, just running around like crazy. You know, it's summer, so the kids are home from school. I got a late start, so I still have young kids. My daughter's a rising senior. Um, my graduated sons, uh, one is working full time and the other one is training MMA. And then my youngest son uh, is 14. Uh, he's a rising freshman in high school. He's all in, 100% all in hockey. So they've been doing their summer training and I dropped him off at the rink on the other side of town. Then my wife wanted to look at a house. So we did that. And I'm looking at the clock going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sprint through this house. <laughs> I just run through as that again. And then I'm going to go over to the rink where I have my academy, where it's my office um, here. And then um, I'm going to be late for the, for the podcast, but you know, podcasts, you know, kind of live in, you know, kind of the, you know, outside of time. So, you know, who know, no one's going to know that I was late, except that I just told them. Does your <laughs> so son, wait, does your son have your skating chops? He actually, he's really talented. You know, it's funny because he's always liked skating. He's always liked the ice. My, my older boy, first son, never really like, eh, not, nah, not for him. He was more into like team sports. So he kind of started in football, uh, did a lot of flag stuff. They wanted to play in high school. And then, um, yeah, they have a pass. And then he went into basketball and he loved that. He's a really good, good, good athlete, very competitive. Um, got into the team thing in school and looked around and said, Eh, passed. Then he got into soccer and he was a highlight reel on the soccer mm, field. I mean, he was just so much fun to watch. He had great foot skills and he would deke everybody and he loved to, you know, just hit it between their legs and just, ah, ha, ha, and all that stuff. And, and he, it was really great. I mean, he was a really great soccer player. And then, you know, sort of the school where he was going just didn't have a really strong soccer culture. We're at registration day and we're looking around and it's like state champion in football. Grrr, you know, all the years <laughs> uh, state champion in basketball. Grrr, state champion in, in track and field. Grrr, soccer. <laughs> Nothing. So he goes, that's what I'm up against. So he was, you know, in his last year of high school, 
he decided that he wanted to prepare himself for the army because he really wanted to go to special forces and, and defend our country. And I, I was really, you know, I was, you know, I, uh, not my first choice, you know, but then my dad was a biology professor and his son became a figure skater. So I'm sure that wasn't his first choice. So I had to respect that, you know, wherever God wants to put us, he's going to put us. And, and so he goes, you know, I'm not going to be the biggest guy. So I better learn how to take care of myself. So he started learning how to fight uh, before he, you know, was going to enlist in the army. And he just started getting into it. Like he got into every other sport and he just decided, he goes, dad, I really want to do this. And I, I feel like I'm really good at it. Well, he's pretty much good, good at everything. How long is it going to last? Right. And um, he's been training even during school, like his last year, senior year in high school, he was training four hours a day, um, you know, jujitsu, striking, Muay Thai, the whole thing. He's learning it all the way down and he's watching other fighters and he's learning and he's growing and he's learning and he's growing and he built his body up during COVID like nobody's business. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> he went from being a really athletic kid to being a specimen, you know, so it's kind of like, oh, you're welcome for the genetics, kidding. Um, but it, it, you know, it's just sort of like, you know, if, if he's that all in and if he's that dedicated, I'm, I'm not even, I'm not going to dampen his enthusiasm at all. He's, you know, we're just going to support it. So I uh, decided to, to uh, pause on the army and he really wants to pursue this path of, you know, being in um, MMA fighting and seeing where it takes him. And I'm, I'm, of course, I'm concerned. And then my my younger son, my other birth child, is in, in hockey where fighting is involved in that. So I'm wondering how my wife, we're, we're very peaceful people, how we created two guys that are, end up throwing, <laughs> you know, fists at each other. And uh, yeah, so it's it's been a real adventure. And then my daughter is... Uh, soccer player and um and we play in high school soccer this year so we're going to be really busy going to games every weekend and trying to sort out who's going to go to who's and how's and where's and, and all the other stuff so it's busy you know it's really and on top of everything else that i do personally it's really busy so um it's uh i'm, I'm lucky i married a very patient a godly woman and uh <laughs> and just she kind of keeps us all together and and um you know, life goes on. So it's, uh, I never thought at my age now I would be this spread thin. Um, but that's fine too. I mean, what, you got to do something with your time. Right. And so I'm, I'm doing a lot with, uh, uh, a lot and all over the place between the foundation and the skating Academy and, uh, you know, the speaking that I do and everything else. And then, you know, trying to be a, a father that doesn't raise a child to, develop a weapon of mass destruction and use it you know it's just like you know all that so uh it's good life's good it's full it's busy it's more than i ever dreamed it would be so i'm grateful yeah lots going on for you next generation of hamiltons are just uh, <laughs> taking things to the next level and exciting for you of course what age did you start figure skating and how did you get into it well, I, you know, I was um, very sick as a child. I was in hospitals um, pretty much in, sometimes out for about four years, trying to figure out what was, you know, keeping me from growing and developing. And and um, we uh, finally were sent home from, you know, the biggest, most affluent hospital in the country, Boston Children's. We just, we can't figure out what's wrong. We know there's something wrong. He's not growing, he's not developing, but, you know, best advice we can give you at this point, because this is mid sixties, you know, healthcare was still sort of, you know, practicing medicine more than performing it. It still is, I guess, in any respects, but um, they sent me home and um, our 
family physician who was a dear friend just sort of had an intervention on my parents saying, you need a day off to recharge your batteries. Four years of, you know, sleeping in the corner chair in a hospital room has taken its toll and you need to, you need to step into one day a week where you just recharge your batteries. And they're like, how are we going to do that? And um, he said, I, I wouldn't come with that advice if I didn't have a solution. There's a brand new facility at Bowling Green State University where they teach skating and they have a hockey team. But on Saturday mornings, they open it up to the community and they teach children how to skate. My kids are in it. They love it. And um, I think it'd be a great environment for Scott to re-socialize, you know, with other kids and, and just, you know, take on something that gives you guys a moment to breathe. And so I, I started their Learn to Skate program. Um, I walked in, there's, you know, 120 well kids. And I was like, whoa, I was used to being around sick kids. And, you know, of course, some well kids, I was, you know, I was home quite a bit, but th now I was immersed in nothing but well kids and I was the sick kid. So I was different. And I got on the ice and um, yeah, I loved it. I, I really loved it. And then after a few weeks, I realized that I could skate as well as the well kids. And then um, after a few more weeks, I realized that I could skate as well as the best athletes in my grade. And for the first time in my life, I had a heap and heppin of self-esteem. And uh, man, that was, man, I just give me more of that. So I, I just lived at the rink. I just loved it. And and the more I skated, the better I got. And, um, you know, I had to get through the teasing. Um, you know, back then there was chain link fence around that glass. Wow. You know, glass tends to, you know, silence people a little bit because it's like <laughs> through the glass. Like I always wonder why people yell at hockey games because you can't hear it through the glass. Um, but, um, you know, it's, so back then it was chain link fence. So I get the whole, hey, twinkle toes. Hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you know, all that peer stuff. So I, I ended up um, telling my mom I wanted to play hockey. And she said, no, you're not. I go, yes, I am. She said, no, you're not. Yes, I am. You're too small. You're going to get hurt. I don't care. I'm going to play hockey. So um, she said, you're a figure skater. I said, yeah, I'm going to stay a figure skater because I, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at that. But um, I really want to play hockey to shut these guys up because I can skate better than all of them. And she said, well, we'll try it and see you know what happens. So I played for three seasons or two neck braces, you know, whichever your perspective is, you know, I got, I got cream because back then house league allowed for checking and everything else. And I remember my last game, I was in the corner fighting for the puck and I looked up and one of my closest friends just had that look in his eye. Like I was just, I was like a, I was like a golf ball on a tee and he was going to hit me 300 yards. Right. So he just, he just hit me as hard as he could. And I, I heard a, a little bit of a pop. And it was my neck and I just laid down and they got me off the ice. And that was, uh, it's okay. I'm, I'm officially announcing my retirement from hockey. I'll take whatever teasing I get from that. <laughs> and it was really fun because I played for those three seasons. So now I'm 12 and all the hockey guys are starting to notice the figure skating girls in the building. And they realized that I had more access to them mm -hmm. than they ever would. Right. So the teasing right. became, Hey, can you introduce me to that girl? <laughs> <laughs> I'll try, right? I'll do my best. So it, it's just fun how life, you know, kind of presents all of its junk and you sort of roll with it. And um, the way things are today is going to be totally different tomorrow. And and um, as I got more into skating, I realized that I was pretty good regionally. I was average sectionally and nationally, I was a disaster. So um, it took me a while to figure things out, but, um, you know, I, I, I had a few life, you know, kind of events that, really focused my efforts and and allowed me to step into something else 
yeah, it certainly all worked out for you, but it almost didn't. I mean, you almost quit figure skating in 1976 due to the high cost. How, if at all, has skating become more affordable over the years? Well, I don't know that it has. Um, I, you know, I was lucky and, and lucky, you know, I give all glory to God, you know, for all the great things that have happened in my life. But, you know, it, it was, it was one of those things where my mom sat us down. I just come in. Well, I was my first year at nationals. I was dead last ninth out of nine. The next year I was ninth out of 10, but the guy that came in 10, I mean, probably shouldn't have been there. <laughs> so, yeah. And then um, I went up to the junior level and came in seventh. And uh, so I beat two guys, which was like huge. I'd be actually beat two guys at nationals. And it was right after that nationals, my mom came home and said, Hey, um, family meeting. And she was very upbeat and very positive and very, you know, smiling and everything else. And I, and we go, okay, what's, we never had a family meeting before what's going on. She said, well, I have cancer and I'm going to need a medicine maybe a little help around the house. And I was like, I thought cancer was a bad thing. Why is she so happy? So she said, um, she gave everybody a list of chores to do. And then she looked at me and she said, and you missed her. And I'm like, yes. And she said, we're almost bankrupt. Um, so this is your last year. We're going to find a way to scrape enough cash together to get you through your last year. It's your senior in high school and uh, we'll get you through this year. And um, this will be your last year. Make it good. And then uh, we'll see what happens, you know, next year. You, we, you know, we're both professors at Bowling Green State University. You, you can go free. We can afford free so that you'll be going to university next year. It's mm -hmm. okay. So I went back to the, um, where I trained in Illinois and my main coach had retired and a new coach stepped in who was very much a disciplinarian and a whipcracker and everything else. I said, well, it's my last year. I might as well submit. And I learned how to skate at a higher level under him, a higher level of commitment, a higher level of, um, you know, just living in fear of, you know, him. <laughs> I would do whatever he told me to do. And I went to the nationals and my mom arrived and she, um, she was wearing a, a sling on her left arm because they just removed her left breast and all of the lymph nodes under her left arm. So she was, you know, obviously at big surgery and, and she lost all her hair. So she was wearing a wig. Um, and so she, she just had the biggest smile on her face. And it, it's just like, are you okay? And she goes, I am absolutely fantastic. And it's like, what kind of drugs do they have you on? Because this is, <laughs> this doesn't make sense to me and why you're so beat. And she goes, you just go out and skate. And we'll talk when we're done. Now, up to that point, you know, the best I'd ever done is second to last, right? You know, or whatever, seventh out of nine. And um, because of this coach, I was just, I, I think I was just more prepared, or differently prepared than I ever was before. And um, I, I, I won junior nationals. And the reason my mom was in such a good mood was on the way to the nationals in Colorado Springs, she stopped or connected in Chicago and she met a, a couple there. It was a setup meeting that I knew nothing about where this couple said, um, we love skating. Uh, we have plenty of money and we don't have any children and we would love to sponsor your son. And uh, we just wanted to meet you first, you know, because this is an investment, you know, we really want him to, to, to experience everything that he can get out of the sport. And we'll look after that. We can do that effortlessly and that'll lighten your load. And so she knew that before I stepped on the ice. Um, I just went out and skated. And so afterwards, uh, she kind of laid it all out for me. She said, um, you're now going to be a senior level skater. Um, we have a sponsor. It's in place and they're wonderful people. Can't wait for you to meet them. 
The only string attached to the sponsorship is that you move to Denver, Colorado, and you take from Carlo Fossi, who that year was coaching a girl named Dorothy Hamill to an Olympic gold medal. <laughs> so, of course, you know, now I'm turning 18 years old. I'm sponsored. And I get my own apartment for the very first time. It's called the trifecta. Doesn't work. <laughs> Never has worked. No, no one is equipped at 18 years old to step into that. And I didn't even know how I even made it to nationals that year, but um, I, I was I was a mess. I was distracted, and I was just I was all I was just like total adolescent, you know. Yeah, I, I give my 18 year old son grace because of who I was at 18 years old. I was just a mess. So um, I went out and I, I, I came in ninth, back to my ninth place finish. And uh, two months later, I'm sleeping on the couch and um, after being in my mom's hospital room till 3.30 in the morning, and I'm wakened by my brother-in-law at the time who just said, um, your mother is gone. And you have to understand she was the center of my universe. She was the most loved person in my life. I mean, I just adored my mom. and. She was everything to me. I just loved, respected, admired. I, and she was the pinnacle for me, it. And now how am I gonna do this without her, right? And I went through all the survival guilt and everything else and I walked around in my backyard and it was in that walk in my backyard that I just decided that I didn't need to do this without her. I could take her with me to the ice every single day and be try to aspire to be the young man and the skater that she always dreamed I could be. And it changed everything. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be late. I would be focused. I wouldn't pretend like I was training. I was actually training. I kind of went back to all those techniques that I learned under my whip cracking coach. I was now under the, the most successful coach in the world. And it was like, if I can't make it work with Carlo Fossi, you know, I, there's something really crazy. And that year I, I went from the ninth place finish that my mom saw to third, I was on the podium at the senior nationals and I, I, I came in 11th at the world championships. I made it on the world team. Two years later, um, well, my, my relationship with Carlo kind of changed the next year cause I got injured and he was interested in other things. And, and uh, so we just sort of like that relationship didn't work. And I don't look at that as an accident. I look at that as a gift um, because we remained friends. We had the highest respect for each other, but you know, he just didn't really want, you know, to, the responsibility of coaching me. So I went to a guy named Don Laws. Uh, he trained me in a way that was perfect. I made it onto the Olympic team in 1980. I uh, came in fifth, went to the world championships right after that came in fifth. So now I'm on this roll and the top three guys in the world retired. So I went from just getting up in the morning. All I had to do is wake up and I'm ranked second in the world. <laughs> it's kind of like great cup of coffee. And from there, it was like, what do I need to do to win? Like that was that, that was the decision is, okay, okay. I'm second in the world. I'm that close. What do I need to do to win? And I just had to take a long, hard look in the mirror and, and just understand where I'm weak and then embrace that weakness to um, make sure that I, I spent enough attention on it so that it would no longer be a weakness. And um, from then on, it was just like, I couldn't lose. You know, I went for the next four years, starting in October. Um, I, October, I think it was 30th, uh, Skate America, or Skate Canada in Calgary 
was the first of the string that took me through four years, four world championships, uh, four U.S. championships, Olympic gold medal. It just, I, I couldn't lose. I couldn't lose. And it was just bizarre that I got lucky a bunch, but I just figured out what I needed to do to, to be able to step on that top podium. And um, it was remarkable because it changed the, the course of my life forever. All right. So you're experiencing this success on the world level now and you're getting set here in 1984 for the olympics <laughs> obviously yeah, there's got to be some nerves there going into that but first before you've been getting there like what's the process for you of deciding your music that you're going to go to perform to and you know are you before you even get there are you going through your routine uh, and you know exactly what you're going to do there, or is that something that you... Oh, yeah, you train every day, right? So what I learned to do in those four years was train every day like it was competition. So when I take my place to, to train my long program, I would say this is competition. This is the only chance I get. This is the one. This is 100% full out, 100% effort. Got to get through it. Got to be clean. If you mess something, go. Get up fix it done. And so every day was competition. So I got used to that, that um, adrenaline rush at the beginning of the music. I got used to the pressure. I got used because I put it on myself every day and I would do a run through every day. So there was never any situation where I felt like I wasn't prepared. So um, after the, the string of victories going into Sarajevo, the only, the only thing I had to avoid was the media <laughs> because um, every time I talk to anybody from the press, they go, do you realize that you're the lock? You're the only sure thing coming into this Olympics that if you don't win the gold medal, it's, it's going to be looked upon as a failure. How does that make you feel? It's like, it makes me feel like I'm going to stay in my apartment in the village and not talk to you guys until I'm done. That's how it makes me feel. So, yeah. So I knew I was under pressure, but I came in with a, a solid strategy. Um, my coach and I did the math and the way that skating was scored back then was on placements. So you were, when you were awarded a placement in one of the three disciplines of the competition that had a point value. And we realized just looking at the field that all I had to do was be top three in the compulsory figures, short program and long program. And I couldn't lose the gold medal. Like there was no way, but I, I wanted to win big, you know, like my, uh, going into the U.S. Nationals in 1984, I, I my goal there was to win every element of the competition by every single judge. So I would get an every, like first figure, second figure, third figure, all nine judges, first place. Short program, all nine judges, first place in, in you know, both the technical and the uh, artistic part of the competition. Same with long, every, and I managed to do that. So I knew I was prepared for the Olympics. And so when I got there, I, I guess, you know, the whole thing was I, I didn't want to have one would have, could have, or should have when I stepped on the ice. No, not one regret. And I knew that Brian Orser was probably now in a position to just absolutely run a clinic on me in the long program. And he did. And so, you know, there was that media that was going, well, how, 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 did, how does, how does this work? And I go, well, it's like, if you're watching the Super Bowl and one team scores 35 points in the first quarter, what are the odds are that the other team's coming back? <laughs> so, well, none. I go, that was my strategy coming in was to get an insurmountable lead so that no one could beat me. So 
I won the compulsory figures, which was a miracle in its own right. And then I, I, I was uh, broken tie for first to Orser. He won the tie, the tiebreaker. So I was second in the, in the short and I was second in the long. And so, you know, all I needed to be was three, three, three in those three events and I'd win the gold. But I was, when I stepped on the ice for the long program, according to the math, Brian had to win the long program and I had to be fifth. Mm. The odds of that happening were not really, gonna, it, it wasn't going to happen. So um, I'd either have to fall down, break my leg in the long program or not finish somehow or, you know, it, it just was that, right? Because there wasn't enough guys that could beat me even on an off day. You know, um, there weren't five, four guys, you know, so I won and, and uh, the media was kind of like needed an explanation. I gave it as, you know, I came here with a strategy and I really wish I would have skated better in the long program. Brian Orser is the future of our sport. He and Brian Boitano and Victor, or, or Alexander Fideyev, they're, they're, they're going to be on the podium next year and at the world championship. So, you know, I had a great run. I did it strategically. I did it consistently. And um, now it's time to, you know, for them to take over. And so I, I think I talked him out of a horrible um, write-up <laughs> and then it was next to step into the professional world and try to make something there because it was unproven that uh, a male skater could draw an audience or pull any interest in, um, in professional skating at all. It's yeah. a challenge. Yeah. The, the strategy worked off, worked out of course, and maybe, maybe some athletes, in today's current state, they don't really think too strategically. And sometimes that's why the pressure can get to them, but no pressure got to you. We've had other Olympic gold medalists on our show as well. I always like to ask the question, what was it like living in the Olympic village? And if you went to either the opening or closing ceremonies, how was that experience? Yeah. Well, I went to everything. I, I, I 80, I went to everything. I went to every hockey game, I, you know, I was in the village, I was in the city, I was all over Lake Placid. I, I just we had a blast. It was so much fun because when you're the third guy on a three man team, you can afford to kind of treat it like you're a tourist because I had no chance of meddling. And, and so then four years later, I'm the lock, right? I'm expected to win and, and it's different, right? So the village was uh, me sort of hanging out in my room, listening to music, journaling. Um, I had an air purifier because um the air in Sarajevo they called it um affectionately planet smoke because they burn soft coal for their you know, heat their homes and everybody smoked cigarettes and everywhere you went it was smoke and so it would <laughs> just thinking about it it's like <clears throat> it, yeah um, air, yeah Phil Merritt called it you go throat everybody gets you go throat right so I just stayed in my room and had an air purifier and just try to not get too much of that in me and and um, I got a really bad cold um, during the Olympics and it would, my whole right side of my head was just full and I couldn't take any medication because of doping. And so I was a little bit, you know, kind of off a little bit, you know, kind of getting to the end of the competition. But um, I just I went to the opening ceremonies, loved it. I went to um, closing ceremonies, loved it. I, you know, I went to all the other events and, um, you know, watched, you know, the Americans compete and it was just a ideal, wonderful, awesome competition. And, and, uh, you know, Sarajevo is a really exotic city, uh, tragic what happened to it after we left, but, um, 
yeah, it was just uh, really remarkable and memorable and special. And I think anybody going to the Olympics needs to to really experience the Olympics and not treat it as a business trip. You know, they need Absolutely. to be involved and, and enjoy all of it. And just it's a festival of sport. It's a celebration of youth and excellence and the world coming together at peace. And that's what we have to adopt it as as athletes when we participate. It's not about winning gold medals to go home and try to find a way to cash that in. It's it's about representing your country and it's about um, meeting the other athletes and um, understanding that you're part of this uh, global community of, you know, people trying to uh, do something at a high level and, and entertain the masses. Being a high level athlete, uh, the trajectory that you are on, once you reach the mountaintop, there's always that saying to stay at the top. It's a little more difficult than getting there. Uh, obviously you took a slightly unconventional route there and it worked for you. Uh, so after winning gold in 1984, uh, was it a tough decision to turn pro uh, and join the ice capades? Uh, no, it, you know, it really wasn't. I was flat broke because, you know, back then. Olympics that was the logical next step. Oh, it was the only next step. I was living in my best friend's parents' basement. And I didn't have a, you know, a pot to you know, whatever. And it was just like, I, nothing. Right. So I yeah. needed to kind of like, now I'm 25 years old. I need to, I need to, you know, I, there were two guys named Brian that, you know, were like, okay, it's their turn. So to stay in, it was kind of like, I've done everything you can do. And, and not only that, but I look back on that. It's like the only, the last person to win, um, to go from the Olympics, Right from that, be the first year after the Olympics to go four years undefeated for the entire four years before me was Hayes Jenkins in 1956. And um, how many people have done it since me? None. Exactly. And I thought Nathan would absolutely do it. He did the four worlds and the Olympic gold and he did it great, but he, there was one oops in there and it was like, you know, it's like, oh, man, I was really hoping that he'd be the guy to like take that over, you know, so that people, you know, but at the same time, there was that little bit of the, um, you know, Miami Dolphins kind of like, you know, pop of champagne. I mean, nobody cares, you know, it's just nobody cares. But, you know, it, it was just, um, you know, it, it was that I needed to make money and I needed, I needed to get out of the workplace. And I need to make a name for myself. I need, there's a lot of things that I need to be doing and it wasn't going back. You know, it's, I have sort of this um, life um, sort of saying that I kind of have to, you know, look upon all the time. And I think you guys can, can relate to it. Uh, nostalgia is expensive. You know, if you missed out on buying that 65 Mustang for 2,300 bucks in 1965, try finding one for 75 grand today. You know, it's that, right? So, and it's always, you know, it's kind of Facebook. Oh, oh, that you know, girl in high school. I remember, you know, oh, we were, you know, I'm going to leave my family. You know, it's all this stuff. It's like, <laughs> nostalgia is expensive, right? Looking back and saying, oh, if it were only that way now. No, it's like, I'm going this way. <laughs> I'm not going that way. Right. I'm going this way. So looking back and saying, yeah, I had a great run and staying on the podium at Worlds every year, getting, you know, get, being the world champion. It's great. You know, ultimate kind of feedback. It's like, I'm the, I conquered the world. Ah, ah, you know. But then it's kind of like, no, it's, 
it's time for next. And yeah. I need to get to work. And, and the best opportunity for me um, was uh, to do a limited run with Ice Capades. It's a 33-week season. And I signed for 20 because I wanted to do other things as well. So I, I signed with CBS to be their figure skating commentator. Did that forever until NBC took over the Olympics. And I did it with them. Uh, even this last Olympics, I, I was doing some stuff for Peacock. And it's always an honor to cover the Olympics and uh, be in broadcasting. And so that, that was great. And then um, I, you know, I do television specials and uh, professional competitions and um, we we're just busy you know it was just you know first year I was professional I was on the road almost 12 months uh, second year I was professional I was on the road almost 11 months Jeez. and then um, at the end of uh, two years of ice capades a new owner came in and decided he didn't want any male skaters he only wanted female stars so they let me go <laughs> worked out for and you so, big time. well for I mean sure. I was stepping, you know, I was like stepping, you know, it was a step in the dark, right? So my manager, Bob Kane, um, genius guy, uh, one of the top guys at IMG, there's, you know, he's one of my best men at my wedding. Kind of he, uh, he sat me down on a beach in Florida. I went down to go to the Lipton tennis tournament and he goes, let's have a meeting on the beach. And I said, all right. And he goes, Hey, I, I've done everything I can with ice capades. They're totally set on women. They're not going to bring you back. And I go, okay. I think that's what, that's what the president of ice capades told me. So I, pre I was prepared for that news because I try to get you a few weeks just to, you know, get some money in the bank, but they don't want you at all. I said, okay. And then he said, um, but you know, we've been talking internally. Would you, um, would you consider helping us build a figure skating tour? And I remember my response was, well, let me check my calendar. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I'm so unemployed. It's like, yeah. And so um, we put together a, a prototype show that toured five college campuses, um, October of 86. And then we went back out more of an exhibition tour in December. And then we decided to go back to the a full production show that we did in the college campuses in, in October. And we, we, that became Stars on Ice. And the next season, we had a corporate sponsor, a brand new company called Discover Card uh came on board and dorothy hamill uh came on board and we just became this really fun tour for professional skaters to go out and did skate at their best rock and roll one show one city one night next let's get into it so we did 30 cities um like that for six years um we started it, it came to the point where we were break even i think year three or four and then by year six we we're making money and then year six, at the end of year six, on uh, uh, Christy Yamaguchi wins the Olympic gold medal, uh, first time since Dorothy Hamill, and decides she doesn't want to go anywhere but Stars on Ice. So we get Christy Yamaguchi, we get um, Katarina Vitt, we get uh, uh, Gordy Evan Greenkopf, who'd been with us for a while. We, we, we got Kurt Browning, Paul Wiley. Sooner than later, Torvald Dean came to skate with us, and it just became this superstar show of all these Olympic stars that just didn't want to go anywhere but to us. Mm -hmm. And we were selling out arenas all over the country. And when Christy joined, we went from 30 to 60 cities, and then we did 12 more in Canada. And it was just um, remarkable to see the growth and to, um, to see, you know, just how 
this tour can just become a destination. And, and you know, there was champions on ice and there's stars on ice and a big, huge audience of figure skating out there, pro competitions, TV specials. Um, we were just busy, really busy. And, and um, it was just remarkable. And uh, just year after year, I thought if I skated four years as a professional, I was fooling a lot of people. Um, but now we're looking at um, year 13. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And, and why can't I stand up straight anymore? Mm -hmm. This is really like, what, what has happened? I must have an ulcer. So 50 cities into a 60 city tour where I was in pain, most of that tour, I, I went into an emergency room in Peoria, Illinois, and a really good doctor there named Dr. John Carroll sat me down. And he said, we found a mass. And I go, I have no idea what that means, but it's kind of cool for a little guy like me to hear mass and description of and he goes, no, you need to take this thing seriously because it's either benign, malignant or something else. And it was in there, I realized I was being diagnosed with cancer. And it was 20 years, two months shy of 20 years I lost my mom to cancer and I'm being diagnosed. And fear was extraordinary, but um, it, it's something funny about cancer. It, it, it's like a lot of the people I talk to that have had that diagnosis, they go from incredibly fearful to incredibly aggressively like ready for combat. Let's go, let's do this thing. Let's, let's beat this thing. Let's, I want, I want my life back. I want to, you know, I want this, I want that. I want, you know, they get hungry for life. And so that was me. I just, I, I, no one was allowed in my room at the hospital unless it made me laugh. Cleveland Clinic taught, treated me great. Um, had a lot of chemotherapy, a lot of chemotherapy, and then a big 38 staple surgery. Um, so my, my memento of that is this big, beautiful scar down my abdomen. And I look at it all the time and just realize our bodies are incredibly resilient and magnificent and beautifully designed. And, and um, you know, I just got back on the road next year. My goal was to be back on tour the next year. And, and I was there back on the road next year. So yeah, it was unbelievable. And, and every time it's, I, you know, I was hit with like that dead end or that, you know, whether it be my parents run out of money or, uh, new owner of ice capades or whatever it is or cancer it just it always seemed like there was something there to get me through it and I think that's why um, you know my faith journey has been so uh, important in my life just to be able to identify it and understand where the miracles and where all of that comes from yeah certainly a miracle a true inspiration and just to close things here on stars on ice, it really, it really changed the game. And that's, that's, it's totally, totally different out figure skating. Do that. Of course. Now for you, Scott, when you are, obviously it was banned during competition, but for exhibitions, you're known for your signature backflip, which was pretty, yeah. pretty dangerous. What was, the last, home without <laughs> what was the last time you attempted one and how often do you skate now? Well, I, I, um, my wife and I had a son nine months and two days after we got married and, um, I'm on the road guest starring or guest skating with stars and ice. Um, they lost a lot of their audience. So, you know, it just sort of eroded and they needed me to come back and just, you know, help out if I could. And so I'm on the road and, um, I was skating to a song, only one life. It's a Jimmy Cliff song that Michael Feinstein, uh, uh, sang and Michael and I were, became really good friends over the years. And, and so I'm in New York City, Madison Square Garden, and he's on the ice singing Only One Life, and I'm skating to it. It's just, oh, this is as good as it gets. And then the next night I'm in Long Island, I'm skating to Only One Life, and I'm, the whole time I'm out there, it's, I'm, I'm thinking, what am I doing here? 
what am I doing here? So um, I have a son. I want to see his first steps and I want to hear his first words. And I'm on the road, like in my 40s, like hobbling through shows. It's like, I, 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 I got to step away. I got to be a dad. I, I just, I don't, it's not about me anymore. It's about him. So I, I stopped skating for five years. In 2009, um, I decided, you know, I had a brain tumor diagnosis in 2004. Um, I, I decided I, I, I wanted to see if I could skate again. It's kind of a healthy midlife crisis. So at 51, I went back to skating and I, I said at my cancer benefit I used to do in Cleveland, that I, I said in year nine, I'm gonna be, be out here next year and I'm gonna skate for the 10th anniversary show. So that was a way to generate more interest in my foundation and the work I was doing in cancer. So I trained really hard, really hard. And I get to um, New York, I was doing some promotional stuff there and um, a friend of mine, Bobby Goldwater, uh, used to be um, executive at Madison Square Garden, was an executive team that put together the Staples Center, you know, really cool guy. And we're sitting in the cab going to dinner and he goes, so how's the training going? And I go, oh, I'm 51. He goes, how's the backflip? And I go, Bobby, I'm 51 years old. Why, why would I, why would I do that? And he goes, sorry. He goes, when was the last time you did a show without a backflip in it? And I was like, oh crap, there's going to be expectation. So I called my trainer in Nashville and I said, find me a gymnastics coach. I got to learn how to do a backflip. So came back, um, started learning it on the floor, on the floor, on the floor. Finally got it on the ice two weeks before the show. I, um, I finally do my first backflip on my own at 51, 51 year old legs. I kind of looked like that bald guy with a red bow tie and the Six Flags commercial. That I kind of you know. So um, I go out for the show, and there's a camera crew in the corner recording it. And I'm thinking this is a big deal. Ah, oh, I'm coming back to the ice. You know, I think it's a great big deal. So I go around and I skate and I do my first jump. And I do my second jump, and I realized at the, at the end of the second jump that I'm on my butt and I'm like oh no and I try to get up my legs sort of wobble and I'm like oh this is not good this is this is yeah my legs are gone and I'm 51 and I gotta go all the way to the other end of the ice and come right back to where I'm sitting and do a backflip on drop dead legs but I've only did my first one like two weeks ago after five years <laughs> this is not good this is like really not good this is bad so I go around and I just take this big deeper breath and I do this big presentation move to the audience on, on the on stage right. And I look square into the face of William Shatner. Ooh. And I think, now there's something you don't see every day. And I started laughing, right? And so it just broke the spell of all this gloom and doom. And I went back and I got just get enough breath in my lungs and enough strength in my legs where I had like 45 seconds of music left I threw this backflip as hard as I possibly could and um, got over, landed it. Ooh. And for the next 40 seconds, 8,000 people pushed me to the finish line. It was unbelievable. So we get to the end. Um, the show's over. Crammer crew comes over and goes, can we do a short interview? I go, absolutely, because I mean, I'm not king of the world, right? <laughs> and they go, you fell. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, right? You know, it's like the media, right? You fell. And I go, I, yeah, I did. I, I was there. Yeah, I remember I fell. And uh, he said, how did, that, how did that, he goes, was that embarrassing for you? And I thought about it for a second. And I thought, no. And he went like, come on. And I go, 
no, it, it wasn't embarrassing to me because it kind of represented the entire journey. How many times have I fallen? How many times have I failed? How many times have I been knocked down? How many times have, have, have I stepped into a situation where it was just like the worst? Cancer, brain tumors, all this stuff. And I thought, no, it, it, re it represented all of it. You fall down and you, you, you get up. You just get up and you face whatever's next. You know, cancer, it's like, yeah, I got knocked down, but you get up, right? And brain tumor, I got knocked down. You get up and, and mm -hmm. you face things and you try to go after things in remarkable ways and good things happen, right? So it, it kind of felt like the bow on everything. And, and, and it's just like, so 2010, um, that 2009, 2010, well, that was the last time I skated. Last time I did backflips um, and it, the year ended with a beautiful shoulder surgery by uh, Richard Hawkins, <laughs> Hawkins, you know, Stephen Hawkins. And uh, then uh, following that, that remarkable, you know, shoulder surgery, uh, brain tumor returned. One surgery became 10. And so, uh, you know, like just the physicality changed a little bit and so I decided to do other things, you know, after that and just be a dad. So long, you know, it's a short story long, like I always do. But, you know, it's important to say those things because, you know, we all fail. We all fall down. We all get challenged in ways that we don't like or don't anticipate. And it's up to us to respond. And um, that's one example of responding in a really um, powerful way. Yeah, I think many times people get too caught up in the destination and you have tunnel vision to the end but there's beauty in the journey in itself. Oh, no. and, and, and that's something that we can appreciate with you. Um, so we're gonna take you back now. Uh, we're gonna take you back 20 years, uh, 1990 inductee, as I alluded to at the top, uh, inducting to the US Olympic Hall of Fame. So <laughs> definitively one of the greatest US athletes uh, oh, in our right. history. Yeah. So, where were you when you received news that you were going to be inducted into the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame? What was your reaction? Uh, and who was the first person that you told? Uh, you know, it was, it was really wild. I was so busy. You know, it, I just didn't understand really what it meant. They said, oh, you've been inducted into the Olympic Hall of Fame. Oh, cool. Why? Why? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people like, why am I going in? You know, and they go, well, um, you got to be in Minneapolis. We're going to be doing, you know, big, big event there. The whole class is going to be inducted there. Um, is there any way you want to bring? And I go, well, I'm not really. I mean, I got, I, I got to, what date is it? Cause I got to make sure I can get, there. I was that busy. Right. I was just like going from one place to another. So I remember getting there and, um, I was sitting with, um, uh, a, an executive, a secretary of the U S Olympic committee, who's also a figure skating judge, um, uh, and Chuck Foster. And, we were sitting together and it was like, why isn't my own family here? This is not right. I just felt off. And then, you know, Sammy Lee, the diver was inducted and it was amazing. And I'm getting to meet all these iconic athletes. And, and I, I was just so humbled. I, like it didn't even hit me until I'm in the room, the size and scope and enormity of just being now part of that kind of Olympic family in a new way of, of being in the Hall of Fame. And, and George Foreman closed the show and he was hilarious. I mean, that guy is just awesome. So I went in with George Foreman, 
you know, one of these yeah. things is not like the other. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's one of those things where, y- you know, there's so much noise in our lives that sometimes we forget to focus on the beauty. You know, it's like um, trying to get through a hike. It's like, no, take your time. <laughs> you know, this is, you're in nature now. This is as good as it gets, right? And I, and I really wish um, that I would have had my family there. When I was inducted into the World Figure Skating Hall of Fame and the U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame, um, I didn't make that mistake again. My dad was there. Um, my sponsor, Helen McLaurin, was there. She was like my mom. Um, she kind of stepped in when my mom um, you know, lost her battle of cancer and my coach was there and they were all there and we had a wonderful celebration. They said, um, would you like to have any articles of your competitive career in you know, the Hall of Fame for that induction? I go, um, do you want all of it? And they go, what do you mean? I go, will you take all of it? Cause I don't really want it. You, know, you take all of it. And they go, sure. I mean, what are you going to do with your Olympic gold medal? I go, that's what I, I want you to take that. Wow. And they go, yeah, because it was no, I'm, I'm serious guys. It lived in a Brown paper bag in my underwear drawer for eight years. And it just, there, I don't know why it just, there was something about it that I just didn't want to, I just didn't want it. And I didn't want to have anything to do with it because I, I guess by that time I'd seen enough Olympic athletes get stuck in the moment and, and I just didn't want to get stuck. I wanted to keep going, you know, that way forward. I, nostalgia is expensive. <laughs> it's really expensive. So I just really wanted to keep moving forward and build a life and a career that, that kept moving forward, not getting stuck in the past. And so I couldn't wait to get rid of all of it. They have everything, everything. I don't have one thing left in my home. Wow. <laughs> one, not one thing. And it's really cool. You know, have you taken your kids there to see? I everything? took my youngest. Yeah, he had a hockey tournament monument, Colorado. So we went over to the museum and I let him wear it, the medal, and he got pictures with it and everything. He thought like, that's really my cool. medal. Take it out of the case. My son's gonna put it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he thought it was really fun. And then it was like, okay, where are we going out for lunch? It's like, okay, yeah. let's find a, a good place to eat. So you know, it's just you know those moments you know are meant to be sort of frozen in time. Yeah. And they're not meant to be put in a bag and carried along because life can get pretty heavy when you do that. You know, we just got to keep moving forward. And uh, the more we, we look back, um, you know, it's like anyone, if, you, if you're a sprinter and you look back, how much time have you just lost? You know, right. you just keep looking forward. And, and I've, I've really tried to do that. And it's fun to talk about those little moments, but I think, you know, if, if, if any of it has any value is, if, if what it can if what it can do to help somebody else when they're stuck or when they're in um, a time of, of of incredible challenge pain like cancer can bring if I can be a source of inspiration or a perspective um, to someone going through it then um, it had meaning otherwise it, it had no meaning at all absolutely well, sure we are so you mentioned this earlier but 1985 you joined CBS as a broadcaster and there was, <laughs> yeah. there was some overlap, but now as far as figure skating goes, you've been a broadcaster longer than you were an actual figure skater. Yeah. So what was it like for you broadcasting your first Olympics? It was really cool. Like it started off, um, you know, I, I started off doing the world championships and my um, play-by-play guy was John Tesh, who is 6'5". So when we did our on camera together, he had to be sitting down. It was hilarious. 
um, because we weren't, if, if we were standing up, he was not in the shot or I wasn't right. in the shot. Just, it was a camera lens big enough for get both of them. So I did the first couple years with John Tesh and then they put Tim Ryan. Remember Tim Ryan? He did Wimbledon, he did skiing, he did all this stuff. Sure. We were partnered together for a couple years and then David Michaels of, of CBS at that time had a really cool idea of, of partnering me with Vern Lundquist. And so Vern and I did three Olympics together um, we did 94 together, which was a real challenge and very distracting and hard to do. And, and my best, um, you know, I don't want to take anything away from anyone else because I've, I've had great teams throughout. Um, but um, I, my, my best paper Olympics were sitting on Vern's right-hand side and just, uh, just a couple dogs talking about, uh, talking dogs, you know, about, he was, uh, he was a uh, Shen Kipale and I was the Chihuahua. You know, that's what we were talking dogs for the Olympic Games. And we had a lot of fun. And then I got the call from Dick Eversall. We're doing the Olympics. You want to come join our team? And I said, absolutely. And so I, I did a bunch of Olympics for NBC and really grown to be very fond of, you know, everyone there. You know, Molly Solomon and uh, Becky Chapman and, um, you know, just a you know, great group of, of leaders there. And it's um, it's just been really fun to be you know, still a part of the Olympics and try to represent those athletes' performances and what they mean um, historically, what they mean right now, and and just sort of give them their moment in the sun. Yeah. So speaking of moment in the sun, <laughs> you're, you're one of the stars of Blades of Glory, probably the best <laughs> skating movie of all time. How does it's that under, come very underrated. I mean, very, someone, very underrated. Will Farrell wrote that role specifically for you so how, how did that connection come about it was hilarious okay so my choreographer sarah kawahara of 20 years i guess as a pro um she she pretty much did everything i ever did she was a choreographer for blades of glory and um i'll go back so i was taking my my son to a dora the explorer thing when he was really little um in la and we you know it's a sunday morning and we get stuck three hours in traffic to get to you know so we're really late and it's really off so we're walking in as everyone's walking out to go you know they had a crafts thing and all the characters and we missed all that because of traffic so we're walking in and i walk straight into ben stiller okay i'm forrest gum so i go hey how are you and he goes hey um it's really funny i run into you because i'm in the process right now of producing a figure skating movie just started laughing <laughs> and i thought well okay when harry met sally on i know it was not that one it was uh something about mary on ice yeah. i go okay all right this is going to be awesome i go well um if you need anything anything reach out and so he goes i'll do that great seeing you so <laughs> um the next thing i get is a is a call from sarah saying have they called you yet and i go no i haven't heard from anybody and they go you're in the script you're written into the script. And I go, wow. well, that gives me a little bit of negotiating leverage. And they go, you, they haven't called you yet. And I go, no, I go, well, we're, we're starting production. We're shooting and it's just awesome. This is so funny. And it's like Spielberg's involved. Like we have to, like, we have to run everything by Steven Spielberg every night. And it's like, what? And so it's crazy. So I meet with the, the two directors um, and it was so fun. They just loved figure skating and the and all the research and everything and so they go do you want to go on set tomorrow and i go i'd love that and so i go we'll, we'll meet with your management we'll get a deal together and be and, and we, we just really want you to do this that's great so um i go to the set the next day and it was the fish warehouse where they did all the back you know 
the training, you know, with Craig T. Nelson, who's a golf buddy of mine. So um, uh, the Forrest Gump thing. So I'm I'm back there and they're waiting to shoot and I'm talking with Will Farrell and John Heater. And I'm thinking, how the heck did I get here? This is so outrageous. And they were just, they wanted to know all about skating. They wanted to know, well, how about this person? What about that? And what about this performance? And how do you learn that? And what do you do about this? And they just, they were just mining me for information the whole time. And then I sat around and I watched them shoot. And it was one of those things where I were definitely going into dialogue replacement because the crew was laughing out loud during the takes. It's like, it was that funny. And um, sure, I got the part and we, we came in at the very end of shooting and uh, Jim Lampley and I were the broadcasters and it was so much fun. We were, we're all dressed, to, we're doing this one thing and, and um, Will, one of the directors came up and said, hey, um, can you come downstairs real quick? And I go, sure, yeah, what, what do you need? And he goes, um, Will just, um, he just wrote a little scene. It's an interview thing for when they, they get done in Denver. And um, he really wants you to shoot an interview with them. I was like, okay. <laughs> that's so great it was the scene where like he's drinking champagne in the kiss and cry area and he slapped the woman on the rear end um, who brought him this right. thing and he goes we're gonna ride this train <laughs> I'm like, how did i get here and what? this is so much fun well you said and, it yourself they wrote it for you they literally yeah. wrote you in it was so great. And it was just one. I have a Blades of Glory poster in my office and it's all signed by the cast. And I got to do the press junket with them. And, and um, I remember one of the, they had a blue carpet. It was meant to look like ice uh, for the opening, uh, the, the premiere. And I was doing a press line and they go, so what's your next role? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, well, I'm just waiting for, um, uh, what's his name? It just flew out of my head. Um, Anyway, there's a, a great actor. He's really super handsome. Um, I'm just waiting for him to slow down just a little bit. Then I would jump in and I'm going to take all the roles. I think my next plan role is Spartacus, the remake of Spartacus. I think mm -hmm. I, I got the build, the look. Well, maybe maybe your next role is going to be Six Flags commercials when they bring back the Vega Band. <laughs> if they make yeah. another, if they make another Die Hard movie and they need somebody to be. Bruce Willis there you go. stunt double. Yeah. yeah, I could do it. I could Absolutely. totally need a backflip. I could throw in together. Skate hard. Well, to be skate, fair, Bruce Willis, skate hard. Bruce Willis is also retired now, apparently. Yeah, so there, there's my opening. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I see it. I totally, yeah. totally see it. But listen, that's listen. you had uh, a remarkable career uh, and, and something that not a lot of people get to the pinnacle of, and you were rewarded for it. So, Well, it's been an, an amazing fun journey and uh made a lot of friends along the way and i've gotten to really experience a lot of outrageously uh, just remarkable things and and to this day i still get to you know do i have a, a fundraising show in the fall uh every sunday before thanksgiving where we raise money for cancer at bridgestone arena uh sean henry and the predators gift me the building which is an incredible wow. honor and and um we have iconic artists musical artists performing for our Olympic figure skaters. And it's a it's really cool marriage of music and movement and, and the skaters love it. And, uh, and it's, re it's really a great way to get to work with my heroes who are musicians and my friends who are skaters and, and try to solve the big problem that affects us all, which is cancer. So yeah. um, 
if I'm a male figure skater, if I'm not plugging something, then I it's a missed opportunity. So you gotta understand, you know. Of course. Um, sure. And if, if anybody wants to help us with our cancer research, we we're doing remarkable work in the immunotherapy space, and and we've done a lot to you know on the support side and the information side and the education side of, of cancer, but we're really focused on changing cancer um, therapies forever enough of this chemotherapy. I'm here because they chemo 25 years later, but I can't wait to get rid of it. We're funding immunotherapy studies. We're really trying to ignite the human body's own ability to fight this thing off instead of filling it full of, of chemicals. And, and so scottcares.org, we'd love people to join us. We have a 1984 campaign where you, know, you can just pledge $19.84 a month and it will really help us meet our goals. So um, you know, all that, you know, if, if nothing else comes out of this interview, I'm really hoping that people understand that uh, I want to use everything I've ever experienced to, to help the community heal and to help people rise above cancer and to do it in ways that allow them to live their lives authentically um, for the rest of their lives instead of with um, the collateral damage that comes from today's treatments. Yeah, obviously, you're very charitable and you use uh, that celebrity status. I mean, you maybe don't consider yourself a celebrity, but Joe, I mean, when it comes to celebrities, <laughs> you gotta you gotta consider Scott, right? Absolutely, uh, truly unbelievable purpose. You're continuing to do amazing things and the right thing. And Nick and I are, are so happy to have you on. Um, we're gonna let you go very soon. Uh, I have one last question for you. Sure. Uh, you were on the second season of Celebrity Apprentice. <laughs> Who? Who approached you about that opportunity? Um, well, I've known Donald Trump for a very long time. I hope that doesn't get me canceled um, somewhere. <laughs> it won't. You know, I, Don't I worry about in, it. Um, the late 80s when he did the Trump rink in New York. And, we, you know, I just see him all the time. I just run into him all the time. And, and I know him in a different way than probably most of the people know Donald Trump. He, a remarkable um, philanthropist, unbelievably charitable with his time, you know, quietly. Everything else is loud, like peak levels loud, but charitably, he's, <laughs> he's really remarkable. He does a lot of things quietly and, and tastefully and elegantly, and, and I've seen that side of him. So I got the call to do Apprentice. I go, yeah, that'd, that'd be fun. I'd like to learn. I'd like to really get into a team. And I'd like to really just, you know, get just experience something really cool. What I didn't know <laughs> was that the whole nature of the show is to make everybody kind of go after each other. And, you know, just like, right. so um, the day I got fired, uh, <laughs> everybody, everybody gets fired except for one person. Right. right? And I knew right. that was going to be Joan Rivers because I knew it was going to be Joan Rivers. Like I, I was in figure skating. I, I, I can tell where a judging, you know, panel is headed towards a yeah. certain athlete. So Joan was going to win no matter what any Dukes did. Joan was going to win. So I just, uh, I was there and I, and the men's team was so dysfunctional. Um, a lot of really fun, cool, awesome people on the men's team, uh, Herschel Walker and uh, Brian McKnight and Jesse James and um, Clint Black. And, uh, uh, you know, it was just, it was just, you know, a lot of really cool guys in the team, but they were just, everybody's like this, you know, they're paranoid and they're all fighting each other. It's like, all right, I, I don't belong here. But the day I got fired, we were in the NASDAQ building and I couldn't get on the internet. <laughs> and uh, the room, our, our room that we were working in was 85 degrees. It's like, is the air conditioning working? Oh, they're working on the air conditioning now. And everybody's sweating and everybody's kind of getting, getting angry at each other and we got getting delayed. And, we got, and it was just like, oh my goodness. And I just felt so bad that 
you know, I, I, we're going to do the best we can. And, and we did, we had a great time. You know, I thought, um, I, you know, Dennis Rodman designed the costume that we were going to use for our model and um, Jesse James made it happen. And it was just all these, it was some really cool things, but we just, you know, that we didn't win the, the we didn't win because I made a stupid choice. It was my fault. And, uh, but I was being hobbled by um, uh, uh, the comedian, um, oh my goodness, why is it flown out of my head? Anyway, I, he was just sabotaging me everywhere he possibly could. And, um, and so I got fired and um, it was, I thanked Donald Trump for that. To this day, I go, thank you for firing me. I did not, <laughs> there was nothing about it that appealed to me at all. And it was funny that Jesse James only did the show that year to apologize to me for stealing my car when he was 16 years old in San Diego and stripping it for parts. <laughs> wow. How cool is that? <laughs> so there's a lot of comedians. Crazy. On here. Was oh it, boy. Was it, uh, so was, it Tom Gre- was Tom Green the one sabotaging you? Yes, or Tom Green. Yeah, I've run into him a couple of times since and it's been awkward. Um, but, you uh, know, it was just, he was just doing what he was going to do. He was going to sabotage, sabotage. Right. That was his strategy was to sabotage everyone. The week after I got fired, he got fired because he got he got uh, Dennis Rodman so drunk that Dennis couldn't make it to the next day. <laughs> Shoot, you know, so it's kind of all that, you know, it's just sort of like crazy, wild, dysfunctional, you know, um, the forced human drama of, you know, all of it. Um, right. But it was it, I met some cool people and it was fun. Right. Like Clint Black and I have been friends before that and, and still to this day. And. And, um, you know, I, I still run into Jesse every now and then I check on him because I really have a soft place in my heart for Jesse James, even though he stripped and stole my car. Um, <laughs> and, you know, scary. yeah. So it's anyways, it was, good, uh, good it was a great mistake, a big, a phenomenal, memorable mistake. <laughs> okay, too. We all make those. All right. So we reached our, our final question here, which we consider our, our most important question here. Oh, I'm nervous. Is what in your career was your you know I'm right moment? So what I mean by that is a time where you wanted to pursue something. So maybe that's figure skating related. Maybe that's the tour. Maybe it's broadcasting, writing a book, whatever it is. And you asked somebody for advice. And they said, you know what, Scott, that sounds like a bad idea. I wouldn't do that. And you say, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. And ultimately you will see why it is that I'm right. You know, I think the whole thing has elements of that. Mm-hmm. It's like, why do you want to be a figure skater? You know, it's a small town in Ohio. Nobody, right. don't, you don't have any training. You don't have any rinks. You don't have anything. Why would you do that? It's like, I had one, one kid my age. We're at a, um, the year I came in dead last in novice nationals. It was kind of one of these moments I like to talk about and just remember um, this skater my age. Um, he did well. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> and we're at this party for Gordy McKellen, who won his first senior title that year. And he um, he just said, uh, you know, we're 14 years old. Right. And he goes, hey, go get me a beer. And Ooh. I go, they're right there. I mean, you just grab one for yourself. And he goes, no, no, no. I have something to lose. You don't. Wow. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because it was there that I, I realized that not only did I lose, but I'm looked upon as a loser. Right. And so I always kind of that one was always in the back of my mind, not as, as a little bit of a scar, but mostly it like uh, 
like it matters like things that you know your approach to things everything you do matters and so like i took everything seriously you know like I, that's it had to learn how to do it like after my mom died that was a big one but that was a moment that i realized that things have consequences and, and, you know, I wasn't prepared. I, I was immature. I wasn't, I didn't know how to focus. I didn't, my coach put, made me on, on my figures, my compulsory figure skates, because they're different than the free skates. He made me put a white lace in my left skate so I could know the difference between my right and my left foot. You know, that's how crazy, how, how, how lost I was. So, you know, you remember little things like that as sort of moments where it's sort of that fork in the road. And I, I did a TED talk on suffering and it just seemed like a downer you know, thing, but and we all suffer, right? So I, I talk about the fork in the road, not being a left or right, but an up or down. And I go, when you get to one of those forks in the road, it's really important that you start the climb. You start going the tougher road because it always blesses you in some way, shape or form, where if you take the lower road, it, it, now you're in a deficit position. You're always worse off than you were before. So always take the high road, always. You'll never regret taking the higher road. And, and I remember that now because that skater, you know, that said that to me, we've, we've remained friends all these years. I've hired him to do shows. <laughs> <laughs> that was passive aggression, by the way. Um, but, you know, it's just that. It's like, you know, whether you're bullied or whether you're insulted or whatever that is, you know, it should be fuel for the fire. It shouldn't be something that is debilitating. It should be fuel. Take the high road. From a beer getting small town loser to a national and international consummate winner. Scott, thank you again for doing this with us. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, what Nick and I do is we always give our guests the last words. So you touched on uh, some of the stuff you did for cancer briefly before, but uh, if there's anything else you would like to share or promote on your own, uh, now is the time to do so. Uh, we are so appreciative of your time. Uh, amazing interview. Uh, we wish you the best moving forward. Thank you again for your time. And if there's anything else you would like to say, sure. Means, go ahead. Well, I always tell people, um, you know, that's gone through cancer. I, I always tell them, you really know when you've survived when you get mad in traffic because you're back to <laughs> the small stuff, right? You're back to <laughs> and it's and it seems like I'm looking around at our culture, and it's and everybody sweats everything. You know, it's, it's like we're, we're knee jerk. We get canceled. We get this, we get that. We get criticized. We get labeled. We get all these things. And it's like, we don't, we don't need to, we can just love each other. Right. You know, and that's the one thing I've learned, you know, throughout my, you know, studying my faith and, and being in, in the word, it's just like, that's the essence of it all. How do you change the world forever and for the better? You love the person standing directly in front of you, whether they deserve it or not. <laughs> you know, you just love <laughs> Right. You just love them. So I, I really would love to, you know, if anybody listening to this, if they're really struggling right now and if they're really unhappy and if they're really rooted in sadness or depression or anger, just take a step back. And, you know, if you leave with love and if you don't allow, you know, the small stuff that, you know, to get impede your joy and, and um, it's just not the way we're supposed to be. If we're supposed to be um, really in there working it out, working together, working, you know, toward a, a greater good. And it just feels to me right now that, you know, whether it's a product that has divided us or it's intentional, or if it's just a strategy or whatever is, is, is blowing us up and, and really just allowing us to just, you know, 
it, it just, I, I just see a lot of people suffering and they don't need to. And I just, I want to, um, if, if anybody doesn't get anything else out of this interview, besides the fact that you can rise above your circumstances and, and really experience and, and participate in cool things, it starts with a positive choice and, and the climb. You just got to get to work and nostalgia is expensive. We're looking forward now. And, uh, and, and that's it. You know, I just, it's pep talk, right? People were better than this. And, and you know, we're all in this together. And we, you know, we lead with love. And, and if we do that, it, it changes everything, everything. And so I would highly recommend that. Very well said there, Scott. So that's going to do it here for this episode of You Know I'm Right. Very special thank you to our inspirational guest, Scott Hamilton. For my co-host, Joe Calabrese, I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right. Thank you.